This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm the anchor man everyone wants to kiss when the ball drops. <laughs> Bill Curtis. And here's your host at the Studebaker Theater in the Fine Arts Building in downtown Chicago, filling in for Peter Sagal. It's Nagid Farsad. Thank you, Bill. We spent all of 2023 celebrating our 25th anniversary, but it's the new year, so we're trying something new. This year, we're going to celebrate our 26th anniversary. Gotcha, suckers. <laughs> up a never-before-heard interview with award-winning journalist Bob Woodruff, who joined us in Ann Arbor in 2023. Peter introduced Bob by telling the story of his injury in Iraq in 2006. A good war correspondent wants to get close to the action, but a great war correspondent gets too close to the action. That's what happened to ABC war correspondent Bob Woodruff in Iraq in 2006, and after recovering from his injuries, he continues to report from around the world and run his Woodruff Foundation to provide support to returning veterans. He joins us now on stage near where he grew up here in Michigan. Bob Woodruff, welcome to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell. Wait, wait, don't embarrass me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's not, the, that's not the name of the show, sorry. So let's start at the beginning, and the thing that everybody knows, you famously had a very close call and a very narrow escape from disaster. You were almost a lawyer. <laughs> I was a lawyer for you four were, years. You were a lawyer for four yeah. years. You went to the University of Michigan Law School. I did. You did. Yeah. The best in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the way I understand it, you were in doing law or teaching law or practicing law in China, right? Yeah, I took a, a practice for a year in New York and then uh, took a year to teach over there in Beijing in 1988 to 1989. Later, I came back and practiced for two more years. Right. But, uh, yeah, I stuck with it. And, and, they were over, and you were over there and uh, CBS News showed up and they were covering the Tiananmen Square gathering and then eventually what happened and they needed a translator or someone to help out? They wanted somebody as a fixer to get them around to do simple translations, you know, for people on the streets. I worked with Bob Simon, who's about the greatest, uh, you know, foreign reporter I've ever worked with. So I had to translate for him and for, for Dan Rather, who j just showed up in Beijing to cover the story. Yeah. But just watching the reporters, the way that their job was compared to my job, that I thought, this is unbelievably exciting. And is that how you caught the bug, working with those legends over there? Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. I, I knew nothing about it before. I just happened to have, as a young lawyer in Beijing, I only know two other Americans there. It was a, a cameraman and a reporter for, for CBS, because I just met them. They were out doing a story. And so they just, out of nowhere, my students all left class because they were protesting, and so the school was canceled. And so I had another month to teach, nothing to do, so I, they asked me if I'd come down and just kind of get the people around town to do interviews, and I, I said absolutely, and then... But you yeah. went eventually into TV news, and I'm surprised because with that hair and jawline, I'm surprised that no one had steered you toward TV news before. So you, so you became a reporter, but not just a reporter. You ended up, as we all know, being a war correspondent. Did you volunteer for that work? To go to the dangerous places? Yeah. 
I think obviously in many ways the war coverage came upon us because of 9-11. Right. You know, I was based, we were living over in London, and I just remember we were watching the TV, and this plane hit the, the towers, and we thought it was like a Cessna. Yeah. And then suddenly we saw the second one that hit, and then we realized that, oh my God, this is Osama bin Laden, because we'd cover him for two years, and we knew exactly who it was. And so literally within five hours, we got, I got out of uh, London, the last BA flight to go to Islamabad. And uh, so we lived in Pakistan for about five weeks till we could finally get in Afghanistan. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the U.S. has been attacked. Yes. You knew who did it because you had been covering the story. <laughs> and you're watching this conflagration on TV and you turn to your wife and you say, honey, yes. I've got an idea. <laughs> You know the people who did that? Let's go talk to them. <laughs> I always thought, like, well, there's my wife. Oh, he's going to a very dangerous place. He could be killed. Let me think about this. Let's <laughs> give it a 50-50. Well, yeah. She would be upset. Did you, I mean, well, of course, when you did get blown up, your wife got one of the greatest pleasures in all marriage, being able to say, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was probably the 150th one of those things. Yeah, I imagine. When you woke up, did you have any memory of what happened? The memory that I had was... When we were hit, I went, I went unconscious, and I literally saw my body kind of floating underneath. And I was up to, then I woke up after I fell into the tank, and I looked up and I saw my producer, Vinny Malhotra, and I said, am I, am I still alive? And he said, you're still alive. And then the next thing I woke, woke remembered was when I suddenly came back to life. And I, my younger brother says to me, are you okay? I mean, how was it? And I said, I got to say, right now, I'm in so much pain. But when I was there, it was white and silent. There was no fear. And I said to him, literally, I said, you know, I got I to tell you, I wouldn't mind going back there. Sure. So in some ways, because of this, I think I have way, I don't really have that much fear of death. I, I have to say, I was thinking about that. I, I can only imagine, and, and no shade to my producers who are excellent, but if I was badly wounded, I think if my producer was the first person to speak to me, they would probably say, we need you to get wounded again. <laughs> Retake. But, but could you do it better? <laughs> well, Bob Woodruff, it is a pleasure to talk to you in person. And we have asked you here to play a game we're calling, Hey, Woodruff, here's some wood stuff. <laughs> what stuff? That's right. That's right. You've been through an awful lot. But are you ready for something this dumb? <laughs> we are going to ask you three questions about stuff made of wood. Answer two out of three correctly, and you'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone that might choose in their voicemail. Bill, who is Bob Woodruff playing for? Frank Maynard of Novi, Michigan. All right. You ready? Kind of, but I was... Okay. Here's your first question. The first thing to be made of wood, of course, is trees. In 1964, <laughs> that wasn't the question. That this wasn't this the question. is really hard. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> in 1964, a scientist proved that a certain bristlecone pine was, in fact, the oldest tree on Earth. The same scientist also did what? A, died of splinters after trying to prove that wood could be used as a food. B, invented the pinewood derby or C, accidentally killed that same bristlecone pine? C. Yes, exactly oh. right. <laughs> Can you get a splinter eating? Yeah, he took a core of the tree's trunk, see, to determine how old it was, and apparently he 
killed it. He felt bad about it, though. All right, next question. The George Harrison Memorial Tree was a gorgeous living wood memorial in uh, LA's Griffith Park, but in 2014, the tree was removed. Why? A, because all things must pass. <laughs> B, because Rolling Stones fans kept peeing on it. Or C, the George Harrison Memorial Tree was killed by Beatles. B. Wow. No, it was actually it was killed by Beatles. Ah. All right, you have one more chance. You can get right and win everything. Wood is, of course, sustainable, renewable. People are trying to make things out of wood that aren't normally made out of wood, such as an ambitious project in Japan to make what out of wood? A, candy, B, satellites, or C, submarines? Wow, these are all good inventions. <laughs> Oh, I got clues. <laughs> uh, people shouting the answer uh -huh. is, that is not technically a clue. <laughs> so, since I had traumatic brain injury, I will accidentally say C. <laughs> no, no, that was just the to see. No, all right, let me guess. TBI, we're going to give you another guess. B. Yes, it's yeah. B. You see, it's useful. You guys, thank you for the money. <laughs> yes, satellites. Certain woods apparently do well in space, and an added benefit when the satellite, like they all do, eventually, you know, the orbit decays and it re-enters Earth's atmosphere and burns up, it'll smell really nice. <laughs> Bill, how did Bob Woodruff do in our quiz? If you think I'm going to ding a wounded war correspondent, <laughs> you're out of your mind. And I don't have to. He's a winner. There you, you are. Got two out of three. Woo! Success. <laughs> Bob Woodruff is, and at this point, I think, always will be an award-winning journalist. He is also the founder of the Bob Woodruff Foundation. More info can be found at bobwoodrufffoundation.org. Bob Woodruff, thank you yeah, so much thank you. for being with us. And because we had so much fun, here's even more from that show in Ann Arbor. Faith, this week the New York Times reported on a new type of helpful service. You can hire people who will test if your partner, your husband, your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whomever, will do what? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> um, it involves that noise. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a private detective type of thing? Something you might want to know that they're doing? Exactly. Oh, test if they'll flirt? Yes. With, it's basically with someone on social media exact, or something? Exactly. Precisely right. To test if they'll cheat on you. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So, say you're worried about the loyalty of your partner. You can go to a site called Loyalty Test. You can hire an attractive person <laughs> to contact your loved one on social media, slide into their DMs, right? And see how easy it is to tempt them to cheat. This is a huge technological leap over the prior test for cheating, which was just coming home for lunch unannounced. <laughs> people sign up to do this in sort of the same way people sign up to be like rideshare drivers, right? And you can go and see a menu of the person you want to test the loyalty of your partner. And they all charge different rates, but you have to be very careful in choosing the right person because you can't choose someone so unattractive that it's like not really a test. Of course, they're not gonna flirt with that person. But you can't choose somebody so very attractive that you're like, well, honestly, who could blame them? 
I hear what you're saying, Peter, and yes, I'll do it. Uh, my Instagram handle is at huge Cordero, and I will be huge. When we come back, we talk with Rachel Maddow on stage at Carnegie Hall. That's when we return with more Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Front Door. We all have that endless home to-do list. Repair the leaky dishwasher, fix the fridge, get the faucet to stop dripping. Get it all done with Front Door, the one-stop home repair and maintenance app. With Front Door, you can video chat with home repair experts, diagnose the problem faster, and cross off that to-do list. Now, when your home needs fixing or maintenance, just open the Front Door. Download and get unlimited video chats with an expert for just $25 a year. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Studebaker Theater in downtown Chicago, filling in for Peter Sagal, the Game Farsad. Thank you, Bill. It's 2024, and we're starting the year off right by bringing you new material we recorded in 2023, but never aired. It's the perfect cure for your champagne hangover. Or, in my case, Pap's Blue Ribbon Hangover. (laughs) I like to keep it real. Just this past December, we did a show at Carnegie Hall in New York City, and our guest was MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. You may know her as the person Chris Hayes steals all his glasses from. (laughs) But first, let's hear the Bluff the Listener game with panelists Karen Chi, Tom Papa, and me. Hi, you are on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hi, Peter. This is Corey DeMarco from Branchburg in your home state of New Jersey. Hey, Branchburg, New Jersey. What do you do there? Uh, The last year, I've been a domestic engineer for my one-year-old daughter. Oh, really? And and I I also have a a child that age. How have you found it? Uh, I'm going to enjoy in a few years when I get back on a good sleep schedule. There you are, yes. (laughs) Well, Corey, it's great to have you with us. You're going to play our game in which you must try to tell truth from fiction. Bill, what is Corey's topic? How I made $8.9 million. Being an entrepreneur is hard work. You need to innovate. You need to work long hours, endure failure. But first, you have to learn how to spell entrepreneur. Well, this week we heard about an ingenious way somebody made exactly $8.9 million. Our panelists are going to tell you about it. Pick the one who's telling the truth. You'll win the weight waiter of your choice on your voicemail. Are you ready to play? Yes, sir. All right. Let's first hear from Nagin Farsad. Playa del Carmen was a typical sleepy Mexican beach town. That is, until it got taken over by hippy-dippy patchouli-scented essential oil-dipped American expats. 
For local restaurateur Maria Diaz, these people were annoying. They always asked if there was gluten in the corn tortillas. There was an alarming increase in flower crowns. And the most annoying among them believed in the healing power of crystals. But she was determined to get one over on them by making up a healing crystal. She took pieces of broken margarita glasses, painted them a convincing teal, and named the resulting crystal Roca Tanta, which is Spanish for dumb rock. She claimed that dumb rock, which was priced between $300 and $800 a piece, had the power to reduce people's sensitivity to criticism. After a year, she had made a cool $8.9 million and had happy customers claiming the crystals helped them, for example, see negative comments on Instagram without getting sad about them. (laughs) When local officials found out about the scheme, they brought her into the precinct where they high-fived her because they thought it was hilarious. A Mexican entrepreneur makes $8.9 million selling broken margarita glasses back to Americans as healing crystals. Your next moneymaker comes from Karen Chi. The Winnipeg Elementary Lemonade Peeps. Sounds adorable, right? You're probably imagining little kids running around, selling lemonades for a quarter, and getting very cute sugar highs. Well, if you thought that, you're wrong. (laughs) The Winnipeg Elementary Lemonade Peeps, or WELP for short, ran from 2021 until three months ago when they were revealed to be fully grown adults. Welp was composed of adults in their 30s and 40s who got away with scamming people for not just lemonade, but also Girl Scout cookies, friendship bracelets, and fan merch, all the while pretending to be entrepreneurial children. In 2022, they even released a radio interview where a supposed six-year-old named Sue Ellen Clark said, We look for opportunities to create synergy and seemingly different retail vertices. In hindsight, pretty suspicious. The reason the team of 12 fully grown adults went through all this trouble is because children don't pay taxes. They kept every Canadian dollar they earned and ended up raking in $8.9 million, which is incidentally way higher than any second grader can count. Some adults in Canada pretend to be children running a conglomerate of child-oriented businesses. Your last road to riches comes from Tom Papa. A group of strongmen in western Indian state of Gujarat set up a fake toll plaza and managed to collect over $8.9 million from unsuspecting commuters. For 18 months, the scammers enticed drivers to divert their route by offering 50% the price of the regular toll plaza. Government officials were shocked that not one of the commuters ever complained about having to pay half the amount of the other toll. (laughs) Said one commuter, I'd rather give my money to a bunch of criminals because at least they kept the roadways nice and safe. (laughs) Apparently, the scam was very convincing with proper signage, lights, but the question is, do fake toll collectors fall into the same tropes as the real ones? such as the extra chatty toll collector who continually tells drivers he's still a million bucks shy of being a millionaire. (laughs) And maybe one modeled after the toll collectors at the Lincoln Tunnel who play loud music, talk on their phone, and roll their eyes when you try to say hello. All right. Somebody made a lot of money, specifically $8. million in a creative way. Was it from Nagin Farsad? 
woman in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, who realized she could sell American tourists almost anything if she promised that they do enough magic. From Karen Chi, some Canadian entrepreneurs who decided that the way to move their retail products was to pretend to be adorable children. Or from Tom Papa, some enterprising people in India who set up their own toll booth away from the real one and made a lot of money by giving people a discount. Which of these is the real story of business genius we found in the news? Well, Tom Papa's never lied to me before, so I, I've got to go with the toll booth scandals. <laughs> All right, you're going to go with Tom's story of the fake toll booth. Well, to bring you the real story, we spoke to someone familiar with it. These guys are accused of setting up a fake toll booth and collecting fees from drivers. That was Mark Frauenfelder from Boing Boing talking about the toll booth to riches in India. Congratulations, Corey, you got it right. You picked Tom's story, earning him a point, but also earning you our invaluable prize, the voice of anyone you might choose. Congratulations. Thank you so much. James, I made it on. Take care. (laughs) And now it's time for the game we call Not My Job. If I were to introduce our guest today the way she might do it on her well-known TV program, I would start back in the 19th century (laughs) with the founding of Stanford University and then move forward to the creation of the National Broadcasting Company by RCA in 1926 and then note the wedding mass celebrated by one Robert Maddow and Elaine Goss in the late 1960s. But frankly, who's got that kind of time? (laughs) Rachel Maddow, welcome to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just wanted to do one of those Maddo wind-ups. Just go way back and then run forward and jump into it. And now we have to do a pharmaceutical ad. I know. (laughs) You are um, a big star in the world of cable TV news. It is my understanding that that was not ever the plan, right? No. I'm not a planner. I didn't have any plan of any kind, especially this. Right. Everybody, we we heard that back in college at Stanford, uh, everybody thought you'd be a professor because you were to use a term that I think is an approbation in these circles, an egghead. A little bit of a dork. A little bit yes. of a dork. Yes, when I met my partner Susan, the only reason she was interested in me, I think, is because she thought I was going to be a professor, and therefore she thought that her partner might have access to a pool. <laughs> that's, that's like three-dimensional chess, relationship-wise. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't suppose 30 Rock has a pool, right? Nope. She's out of luck. No, Damn it. She really, Damn it. She really miscalculated. Yeah. So how did you stumble into broadcasting? I was finishing my dissertation, um, living with friends, totally broke, and I got a job um, as the news girl on a morning zoo radio show. You are kidding me. No, it was a live on the air audition, and I got hired on the spot and started the next day. And how did you, how did you fit in in the whole morning zoo crew type ethos? Well, one of the things that happened on our morning zoo show, it's called the Dave in the Morning Show. Sure. Um, and we used to write jingles for local businesses. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I think I speak for your international fandom to ask, can you still do a jingle? Uh, uh, I remember bits of them. For example, um, it's not just for Cinco de Mayo, so put on a suit and a tie <laughs> I don't remember how that one started. There was something about uh, don't bar- you can't borrow my chainsaw. You get somewhere on Route 9, get yourself a chainsaw because you sure ain't using mine. <laughs> Green Mountain Power, out in 
Florence Mass. We give you the power to cut your freaking grass. <laughs> I do remember some. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the economics are like at MSNBC, but you guys could consider doing that for, like, Archer Daniels Midland for sure. their ads, you know? Yep. Uh, that's amazing. And so did you realize that you loved it or that you were good at it or that people, I mean... I, I did really enjoy it. I did it for exactly one year, 365 days, and then I went back to graduate school to defend my dissertation. And With I, a jingle, I hope. No, yeah. <laughs> what was your dissertation in? It was on AIDS in prison. So there's not very oh, many songs about I was going to suggest coming that. up with a funny jingle, but I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I defended my dissertation, and then two weeks later, 9-11 happened. And I found myself regretful of the fact that I had given up my job, my little tiny job, reading the news. And I actually called a different local station um, and asked if I could fill in for free on the morning show. And then I moved to Air America Radio, and then on we went. Here we are. Do, do you remember what it was like to uh, transition from radio to TV? Something I've never dared to do. <laughs> I have never really admitted to myself that anybody can see me when right. I'm telling <laughs> In my mind, it's well, just me and a microphone. If you think about it, you can't see them. Ding. So it wouldn't be fair if they could see you. Ding! Right. Exactly. I wear the same clothes every day. Right. I, um, there's nobody else in the room except for a nice lady named Jackie who stands next to the camera. Yeah. Um, and I don't pay very much attention to what the visuals are on the screen and I just think about the script. Right. It, does it ever get intense? Because I know people look to you not just for information and analysis, but for kind of hope. Do people like come up to you and like laden you with that? Because that'd be a lot. It's, yeah, I don't, I don't feel you know, beleaguered by it or anything. I have, I have nothing to complain about at all. I do sometimes worry when people say that I am the thing that gives them hope. Right. I just think, wow, that is a gossamer thread. Yeah. Because I'm just a person who talks about the news on television. Like, you should have other resources. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I worry about people thinking I can do more than I can. Right. Uh, since so many people look to you for comfort, I wanted to ask you about the things you do for comfort. Yes. Um, I understand you're, you've become quite uh, the Fisher person. Yes. I'm, uh, I do it a lot, but I'm bad at it. Really? Yes. What kind of fishing? All the fishing. All the fishing. I will do any kind of fishing. I don't like to keep the fish. I always put the fish back. But other than that, I'll do anything. Really? Yeah. So you do, like, you do your fly fishing? Fly fishing, spin fishing, ice fishing. I love ice, ice. fishing. Ice fishing is my favorite kind of. So fishing. you're telling me that if I'm out there, like in the mountains of the Berkshires, and it's there's a frozen lake, I can look out there, and there's a huddled person sitting there, in a next to a hole in the ice. It could be you. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. Staring into a hole, yeah. happier than I am at any other time of the year. Really. <laughs> yes. Uh, I could do this all day, but we do have business to do. Uh, you have a new book out called Prequel which is about the pro-fascist movement in America. But since you have written a book called Prequel, yes, we have, we have asked you to play a game we're calling The Worst Prequel of Them All. <laughs> Meaning, what do you know about the Phantom Menace Star Wars Episode One? Oh, no. 
no. So we're, if you, your job is to answer two or three questions correctly about The Phantom Menace. Oh, no. You don't you <laughs> know. I saw the first Star Wars movie when I was four, yeah. and that's the only Star Wars movie I have ever seen. Right. And the only time I've ever seen that one. Do you know what they're about? They're about, like, mm-hmm. war. Yeah. And, and stars. And stars. stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I can do this. Okay. Bill, who is Rachel Maddow playing for? Lee Woodyear of New York City, who is celebrating his 60th birthday with us here at Carnegie Hall. Here's your first question. Uh, now, we all know, you may remember this. Remember the lightsaber fights in Star Wars? The swords? You remember this. Well, you have to have lightsaber fights, and they had them in The Phantom Menace, but they were hard to get right when they were filming. Why? Uh, A, all the lightsabers had been thrown out when Lucasfilm moved their offices in 1994. Uh, B, actor Ewan McGregor, who played Obi-Wan, kept making lightsaber noises with his mouth, which were really hard (laughs) to remove in (laughs) post-production. Or C, George Lucas insisted that the actors fight with real lightsabers. I'm going to go with B. B is the answer. Ewan McGregor. Um, Wow. You would know this if you were that kind of nerd, rather than the brainiac. <laughs> but it is literally impossible to pick up, like, anything, even a flashlight, and not go... <laughs> and Ewan McGregor could not stop himself from doing that, and they had wow. to erase it. Okay. The movie sets were built only to be as high as the actors' heads, right? Because the rest of the, you know, expanse of whatever room they were in would be created digitally later, right? But there was an unexpected problem with that supposedly money-saving technique. What was it? A, Liam Neeson, who was in the film, was so tall that he cost the set crew an extra $150,000 in construction costs. B, George Lucas said the doors will be CGI too, so the construction crew did not put any openings in the wall for the actors to walk through. (laughs) Or C, whenever an actor ran on the set, his head would bounce too high and disappear. We think it's Liam Neeson. You're right, that's true. This is great. I love this. I love that you're answering this as a collective. Yes. (laughs) So appropriate for you MSNBC people. liberal collective thing I've ever done. I know. (laughs) All right. Last question. Um, The parts of the movie that were not shot on digital sets were made in the deserts of Tunisia where it got so hot that what happened on set? A, the actors playing Jedi Knights demanded and got air conditioners put under their robes. B, Natalie Portman and the other actors actually fried an egg on top of (laughs) R2-D2. Or C, they needed four standby actors ready to get into the metal C-3PO costume because they kept passing out. Oh, wow. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Trust your feelings, Rachel Maddow. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to go with air conditioners. No, it was actually they fried an egg. Oh, you're Uh, kidding. Yes, they did. An, An actor named Ahmed Best, who was in the movie, uh, said that they did that, and as far as we know, he had nothing else to do with the film. <laughs> Bill, how did Rachel Maddow do in our quiz? How could we make Rachel anything more than a champion to come in? <laughs> Rachel Maddow is the host of the Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC, and her new book, Prequel, debuted at number one at the New York Times bestseller list. Rachel Maddow, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Show. 
When we come back, NBA legend Damian Lillard and country music's Brad Paisley. That's when we return with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines understands the support small businesses need. Knowing that no business is the same, knowing that we're all impacted by things that are beyond our control, like catastrophes, and hearing and listening and understanding what's important to a business owner, understanding how much is truly affordable and what makes sense at that moment. Because a three-year psychiatrist is going to be very different than a 20-year doctor. And a two-year sign owner is going to be very different than a one-month restaurant owner who's just trying to figure out what's going to be on the menu next month. Those are the things that I think are extremely important that come to my experience as a small business owner. It's me figuring out how to help the people that I live with, how to help the people that I work with, how to help the people that I volunteer with. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Studebaker Theater in downtown Chicago, filling in for Peter Sagal, Nagin Farsad. Thanks, Bill. One of the joys of taking our show on the road, besides overeating local delicacies like fried pickles, is inviting local legends onto the stage and watching the audience absolutely freak out when they see them. My favorite part of Wait, Wait, Road Trips, I get to be the DJ. Hope you all enjoy my new playlist, Bill Curtis's Sultry Slow Jams. (laughs) This past year, we gave audiences plenty of reasons to lose their minds. First in Nashville, where we were joined by country music star Brad Paisley. Peter asked Brad if his kids were fans of his music. I would say they, they have their moments. Like the other day, we had a... There was a song they weren't familiar with, and they went back and listened to it. They said, what's that one about? I said, I don't know. Go listen to it. So we listened to it in the kitchen, and and Huck, my oldest, said, well, they can't all be gems. (laughs) (laughs) So no, they're not impressed. No, they're not impressed. Um, And your kids believe, I'm sure, that all of your love songs, of which you have some great ones, were all about their mother, right? So does she. (laughs) (laughs) And, And... but many of them are, right? And is that like, I mean, it's, it's weird, right? Because you're writing about the person you live with. And yeah. is she cool with that? Does she like them? She was in the beginning. And then after a while, I started to get a little more realistic with some of the lyrics. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I had a hit on a song I wrote about her recently that I came to find out she does not care for. Really? Yeah. How did you no, find out? Yeah. yeah. Well, we were That's in the kitchen, and, and, she, and she was joking around about these songs that, that some of them, like, lately I've written some funny ones about arguments and, you know, leaving her to go fishing and whatever. And um, <laughs> there's elements of truth in these. And then I had one that's a very touching love song, and she's like, yeah, I never cared for that. And I said, <laughs> why? She's like, it's not true. There's no way that... She's like, you just wanted a hit song on that. So, she's probably right, but still, it's like... (laughs) Um, One of the things I love about your songs is I find them genuinely funny. Ticks! Yes. It's a great, funny song. Well, it's a public service announcement is what it is. Yeah. Lyme disease is real. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I think uh, for people who don't know it, the, the, can you do the chorus of, of Ticks? Yeah, I'd like to see you out in the moonlight. I'd like to, uh, I don't even know, I remember it. Yeah. I'd like to kiss you way back in the sticks. I'd like to walk you through a field of wildflowers. And I'd like to check you for ticks. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you have um, a, a lot of fans. Do they, I mean, Taylor Swift has Swifties. Uh, Ga- Lady Gaga, Little Monsters. Do, is there a nickname for your fans? Let's come up with one. All right. What about ticks? The ticks? <laughs> what ticks? ticks? Brad's ticks. <laughs> Show me your ticks. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my ticks. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> well, Brad Paisley, I can't tell you what a thrill it is to talk to you here in Nashville. I can't quite believe I got to do it. I can't believe I'm on this show. I, <laughs> you, this, something you and I have in common. But we have asked you here to play a game that this time we're calling... Welcome to Paisley Park, Paisley Brad. Okay. So Paisley Park, as I'm sure you know, was the studio that the musician Prince built for himself... Right. ...in Minnesota. Today, it's a popular tourist attraction there. We're going to ask you three questions about Paisley Park. If you answer two of them correctly, you'll win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Brad Paisley playing for? Jonathan Craig of Nashville, Tennessee. All right. He's out there somewhere. I I guess I have to ask, because it's more than likely, did you ever meet Prince in your travels? I never did, no. Really? Mm -mm. That seems a shame. It is a shame. I I would have... uh, Loved to have uh, served him papers on the name of that uh, studio. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here is your first question. Uh, Prince, of course, no longer in residence, but a visitor who was there in 2018 was lucky enough to meet one of his artistic collaborators. He was living there. Was it A, the valet whose sole job was to lift Prince in and off his platform shoes? B, a pair of doves who are credited musicians on one of his albums. <laughs> or C, the lighting technician whose job was to match the color of Prince's aura of the moment. <laughs> All three of those are compelling. They really but, are. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the lighting technician. But what about those doves? Were there real doves on it? There were? Oh, shoot. Uh, mm-hmm. This is so important. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna. All right, I'm gonna. I'm gonna listen to to the brain trust to my left here and, and go with doves. That's right. Yes. Right. <laughs> the doves okay. were named Divine and Majesty and are credited musicians on the album One Night. Wow. Okay. All right. Okay, next question. For the ticket price, visitors get a hands-on experience at Paisley Park when they are allowed to do what? A, play ping-pong on the very ping-pong table on which Prince once humiliated Michael Jackson in a game. B, use uh, Prince's own hot iron to brand yourself with his famous glyph. Or C, use the microwave where he himself used to heat up his frozen pizza. <laughs> well, I think we're going to, yeah, let's go with uh, the Michael Jackson ping pong table. That's right. That's yeah. What right. Yeah. Here's your last question. All right. Prince was not the only person to record at Paisley Park. Remarkable recording studio. Other artists used it like R.E.M., the Bee Gees, and once who? A, Rob Zombie. B, the Morbin Tabernacle Choir, or C, the Hormel Chili Company? Mm. <laughs> oh, 
see. Are they based in Minneapolis? They are. I, mean, I, every I, I, I will tell you, Hormel is based in Minnesota. Then, then I bet it is because I could just I could see the ad exec right now saying, "We got Princess Studio on." You're right. Yes. <laughs> How about that? I'm excited to hear what your prize is. With three your help. for three. Speaking of television commercials uh, in which I've seen you sing jingles, could you do a, a good jingle for, like, chili? Chili? Sure, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, if you're going to eat tonight, you know what you need to do. Get yourself a spoon and eat the musical soup. <laughs> is that... Uh, there could, I, could, I could go on, but yeah. that's not. <laughs> Bill, how did Brad Paisley do in our quiz? <laughs> Perfect. Wow. Of course he did. In that and in all things, Brad Paisley's new single, Same Here, featuring President Zelensky of Ukraine, is out now. Brad Paisley, thank you so much thank you. for being with us here in Nashville. Thank you. I'm Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Thank you. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. Finally, when we brought our show to Portland, Oregon in July of last year, we knew we had to invite NBA legend Damian Lillard. For 11 seasons, he was the cornerstone of the Portland Trailblazers. Peter began by asking Damian how he got started playing basketball. I started playing basketball because I actually faked sick one day from going to school. Really? And so did my older brother and my older cousin, who's like my brother. It was like, all right, everybody just stay home. (laughs) So... We outside in the front yard, and they playing on, the, on our basket, on yeah. our hoop. And once I saw them, I was like, you know, show me. So they started showing me crossovers, how to shoot. They lowered the basket so I could dunk, and I was like, I automatically took interest in it. Really? And, but and I was bad. Now, is the moral of the story definitely fake sick, kids yeah. of America? Uh, <laughs> fake sick. My stomach hurt. How, <laughs> how old are, were you when this day At happened? At this time, I was like seven. And then I... I became passionate about it. I would work on it by myself. I would go out there and shoot, dribble. I would go to the park. Yeah, and and, and, and that was when w- it started. Was there a moment? Was there a moment when you like knew? Okay, I am good at this. This is something I can do. Was it your high school team? Was it like in the playground in Oakland? Where, where was it? Uh, I would say my sophomore year in college. I went to Weber State University. Yeah. So when I got there, I was like. People don't go to the NBA from right. here. Like, yeah. So the, I mean, you were, not, you were not one of those kids who was, like, recruited by all the powerhouses. No, no not no, at no. all. You're not at all. So you're at Weber State. It's in Ogden, Utah. Ogden, Utah. We read uh, that when you were at Weber State, you had a trainer uh, who's still with you. You still work with him, right? Which is pretty cool. That's been yeah. for some years. And we also read that every Sunday 
you would go with him to Famous Dave's Barbecue. That's true. <laughs> right? Yeah. So when you, were, when you were drafted by the Portland Trailblazers, did you immediately check if there was a Famous Dave's? I'm going to tell you a funny story. About Please. <laughs> so I was known in college for being cheap. Really? <laughs> like, I used coupons. <gasps> I was great value everything. Like, yeah. So Famous Dave's was like a nice restaurant that I knew. Right. You know, I looked at that as like a nice establishment. Right. So when I got drafted here, I looked for two restaurants, Wingstop, <laughs> Wingstop and Famous Dave's. Right. And there's actually a Famous Dave's right down the street from there you go. the Do practice facility. And you didn't know that. Did you coupon at Famous I didn't. I could afford it. So it was, really? it was a little bit different. Uh, so you also have a remarkable career as a rapper. You had a kind of rap battle with Shaquille O'Neal. I did. All right. Shaq oh, Diesel? Yeah, Shaq Diesel. So, <laughs> if you don't mind, I got to ask you about that. How do you get into a rap battle with Shaquille O'Neal? I did a podcast in New York, and they asked me who, who's the best athlete rapper of all time, and I said me. <laughs> and he saw that interview. Yeah. And, like, he started dissing me, like, in a song. He made a whole song dissing me. Really? So we went at it. Right. That was it. So, so you, recorded, you recorded a song, and this is just one of the many verses from that. Loved you when you was in beast mode. Low-key thought you was a cheat code. Know that you shoot for the cheap hose. Shooting need work like your free throws. That's... It's a diss. It's a diss. Like, that's... you have to diss. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know the man, and I'm like, that's low. That's, that's hitting him where it hurts, man. Uh, where do things stand between you and Shaq after all this? We cool. We actually started, like, doing a song. We started trying to do music together. Oh, that's cool. We did a collaboration on the shoe and everything, so it wasn't, oh, it wasn't personal like that. Yeah. I just was like, why not do some lyrical sparring? <laughs> no, no, I... <laughs> Why not? Well, Damian Lillard, uh, it is an absolute thrill to talk to you and have you I with us. It. And uh, we are going to have you play a game. And this time, we are calling the game Buzzer Beaters Meet Buzzard Eaters. <laughs> so you're famous for buzzer beaters, those last minute shots. We're going to ask you three questions about eating like a buzzard. <laughs> that is the fine art of dining on roadkill. <laughs> Who came up with that? Well, I know. <laughs> So if you answer two or three questions about this, you will win our prize for a listener who will get, as their prize, the voice of anyone they may choose on their voicemail. Bill, who is Damian Lillard playing for? Jasper Handley of Portland, Oregon. Yeah, okay. Ready? Okay. First question. Every year, roadkill enthusiasts gather in Marlinton, West Virginia for the Roadkill Cooking Festival. And in the competitions, they get points deducted for things like which of these? A, gravel in the meat. (laughs) B, visible tire marks. (laughs) Or C, if the autopsy reveals the animal died of old age. I'm going to go with gravel in the meat. That's right. Yeah, gravel in the meat. Be careful. That was the easy one. Chew slowly. Okay, we have the easy one. I believe, I believe we, we, we refer to that uh, in your field as a layup. It's a layup. Yeah, yeah. All right. I Second question. Yeah. 
a Texas man uh, came up with a roadkill recipe called stripped and shaved Cajun beaver tail. And that recipe got him some special recognition. What? A, he became the commercial pitch man for Hormel Chili. <laughs> B, he catered a dinner for the governor of Texas. Or C, he got a spot competing on the TV show Master Chef. I'm going to go with C. You're right. Yeah, that's what happened. Sadly. He didn't win. He did not win. He did not, he did not make it past the third episode. But All right, last question. Roadkill is a problem everywhere. People don't want it. Many places, of course, post deer crossing road signs in an attempt to prevent roadkill. But one North Dakota woman demanded they be removed from the highways in her state. Why? A, a charging deer had once knocked her over while she was hiking and she wanted revenge. Uh, B, as a self-described grammar nerd, she did not like that the signs did not say deer's crossing. Or C, as she said, quote, why are we encouraging deer to cross at the interstate? <laughs> Unquote. Does any, have anybody heard of this story? Is that why y'all saw it? All right, C. C, it is C, yes. You heard of it, you heard of it. In her life, she had hit three deers with her car herself. She was sick of it. And, and apparently she thought it was because the deer read the signs, <laughs> deer crossing, and said to themselves, I guess we cross here, guys. Let's go. <laughs> Bill, how did Damien Lillard do on our quiz? Perfect. <laughs> Damien Lillard is a seven-time NBA All-Star and the all-time leading scorer in Trailblazers history. His fifth album, Don Dalla, will be out later this summer. Damian Lillard, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That's it for our first show of 2024 and the last show of our 26th anniversary celebration. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions' Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Godeke writes our limericks. Our public address announcer is Paul Friedman. Our tour manager is Shana Donald. Thanks to the staff and crew at the Studebaker Theater. B.J. Lederman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dornboss, and Lillian King. Our vibe curator is Emma Choi. Special thanks to Monica Hickey. Peter Gwynn is live in Times Square taking shots with Andy Cohen. Technical direction, Lorna White. Our CFO is Colin Miller. Our production manager is Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillag. The executive producer of Way Way Don't Tell Me is Mike Danforth. Thanks to everyone you heard, all our panelists, all our guests, and of course, Bill Curtis. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Nagin Farsad, and the show will be back next week. This is NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. 